Welcome, everybody, to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. What's up, everybody? And today on the podcast, we are hitting probably our most in-demand topic. Uh, We have a few uh, that just always are reoccurring, uh, but this one's a big one. And the topic is really understanding market demand. And I mean that across the board. So is this market a good market? Is this market a bad market, right? Another one we get is underwriting. Another one that we, we get is finding deals, right? Um, and uh, once again, this is across the board, okay? So we own uh, several different companies. We've had very unique opportunities to buy companies that were in trouble, uh, but had good sound fundamentals. Uh, as well as grow companies in different markets um, and invest, obviously, in real estate across many different markets, across many different states. Now, the first thing that I want to talk about is I'm a big believer in intrinsic value. I'm really a big believer that when we buy a business or we buy uh, an asset that there needs to be meat. There needs to be meat on the bone. I want basically immediate equity and I want uh, upside in revenue day one, right? So it's, that's what I look for. I look for that in businesses and I look for that in assets. And one of the big parts of this is the fact that, um, you know, we're, we need what I call my margin of stupidity. There needs to be more than an expectation that things will go good. If it's priced to perfection, um, then I don't want it. And a lot of people are viewing today that a lot of assets are priced to perfection, which they are, right? Um, Now, that doesn't mean that all assets are. And this is a big problem that uh, investors get. We're, We're buying some businesses on pennies on the dollar right now, we're getting assets that are shockingly undervalued. Um, so even when there's so much money in the market and so much demand, we're finding it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go into a lot more detail uh, on, on that, especially in the self-storage income podcast, if you want to understand about that on just self-storage specific. Uh, but part of this margin of safety is a twofold thing. Okay, so the margin of stupidity uh, involves two sides. It involves the asset itself, and then it involves the market that I'm in. Um, And the first is the market, okay, because that is something I can't change. Just like the asset, the first is location, because I can't change that. And so the margin of stupidity means that there's enough going on that even if I made dumb mistakes or even if I don't execute perfectly or things don't go right because I didn't understand it all, then I'm still okay, right? It's still a good investment. And this is a very core principle in my investing philosophy. And because of that, we look very hard at markets and we look very in depth to understand what's going on. And I wanted to talk about that today. So when you're looking at markets and stability for demand, you have a couple things going on, 
right? So we're going to layer this in a two-fold market uh, uh, process here. So the first one is, if you're looking at a market, the physical market, right? So the physical uh, market means people, it means demographics, it means uh, everything else, right? So we're looking at the actual market itself. Then the next side is the product market, okay? So we have a market that is sustainable and we're looking for different things like population growth. We're looking at income growth. We're looking at employer uh, distribution. I'm going to talk about all, the, all of those things in a minute. And then we look at product growth or, or, or product market, meaning um, the demand for products within a given market and the overall supply. Okay. So these are my two sides. First of all, when we look at uh, markets and the margin of stupidity. All right. Now, the market overall, there's a lot of things that we have to take into consideration. Um, you guys may have heard, if you didn't, you can listen to the, I think it was three weeks ago now, podcast that I did on the you know, I think it was called the downfall of the dollar or something like that, where we talked about the overall market as far as currencies go and where we see things lie. And how I evaluate currency is very much how I evaluate a business or an asset. Okay. I'm looking first of all at the fundamentals. We're looking at stability. We're looking at options, choices, infrastructure, um, all of this has to be taken into consideration. It is a very much a 4D view. It's not a line item. It's not something that I read in a news article that said, oh, you know, this is happening or this is happening. It's not anything sensational. It's not hopes and dreams. Well, did you hear so-and-so employers coming here? Um, those are all great, but that has nothing to do with analysis. Um, that's just hearsay. That's just rumors, right? Which is a horrible, obvious way to invest. So when we look at the dollar and when we look at the United States and why the world is betting right on the United States and why the world is betting on the dollar, it's industry. It's interesting when I hear people that try to say that's not true or it's not when it's like, you can say that because of whatever feelings you have that are driven by politicalness, by angst, but that's not what the numbers show. So I don't care what you say. I care what you spend your money on because spending money is a sacrifice and that is a vote. It's not words. It's not easy. You are actually giving something for something else, right? So when I look at demand, I want to see what the consumers are not saying. I want to see what they're doing. Um, and when you look at the world and how capital's going and moving around, it's vastly coming into the United States for an exchange. Uh, capital is pouring into assets into the United States, um, as well as the foreign exchange reserves, um, which are dominated and growing in the dollar. So, we look at how people are voting. We look at what they're doing. Um, now, does this mean everything's perfect? And this is something you got to understand. No, it doesn't. Does it mean that I agree with everything? No, it doesn't. Um, can the dollar fall? Can the United States fall? Of course. That, like, that's not even a question. Of course it can, right? 
Um, I think the same way with markets. Yeah, they can absolutely tank. We need to understand why. I need to know how. But I really want to look at what's actually happening to determine a solid foundation to understanding demand. So when we look at things like the United States and the dollar reserve, um, the numbers and the data, not line item data. So I'm not talking about a single source, anything else like that. Um, I'm talking about all of it combined. So one of the things that people look at is the mismanagement of capital throughout the United States, which I am a huge believer in that. Uh, we have so mismanaged our financial affairs in the United States, it makes me sick. And what we're dealing with in the United States um, socially is um, apt to a spoiled child. You can get mad at me. I don't care. It's true. The reason why people in lots of other countries, which are vastly more problematic and socially unjust, um, racist, et cetera, et cetera, don't have these problems because they don't have time to sit around and means to complain about them. They have to eat. They have to move on. Right. And people that haven't lived in other countries, right, um, they don't really understand this. And so if you're in a bubble of America or Europe, which really the euro is your only alternative option, which I talked about in that, because part of the thing that we look at markets is we look at not only what can kill the market or that product is competition, alternative um, choices. Well, in the case of this, the dollar is the euro, which is fundamentally flawed by a lot of reasons. And the voters show that, or excuse me, the money shows it, right? When things got in trouble, everybody rushed out of the euro and they went and flocked back to the safety of the dollar. Um, the only reason the euro survived was due to Germany, which was a really unfair thing to Germany. But we found a lot of problems that when times are good with the euro, it's good. But when times are bad, um, it's not good and it's ugly and they fight. They're different countries. They have different things. They, you know, we didn't even understand how mismanaged Greece and Spain and France were. They were, they were bankrupt, all of them, um, and not bankrupt by the means like we say in the United States, we have more debt to ratio. No, they couldn't pay bills. Like they literally didn't have money to pay bills. It was over. Uh, and so Germany had to bail these people out. So when you're looking at markets, when you're trying to understand landscapes, I, you have to take a full view. The other thing that we look at, not just competition, but I'm looking like Warren Buffett does at their moat, their ability to protect their intellectual capital, their ability to ward off competitors. Well, that's an easy one for the United States because it basically is all of Europe's military. And now people like to give crap for the United States for that, which is understandable. And I agree. Once again, I'm not saying things are right or not. That has nothing to do with this, right? Do I think we should be getting involved in wars? Or no, because honestly, I don't know why we support our competition in that way either. You know, if somebody wants to attack there in Europe, there's a huge part of me that's just like, eh, just let them do it, right? We're America. Let's go back to like we did before World War II. And all right, we'll get in if things get super bad. But other than that, you guys deal with it. But um, they don't have the ability to. They are literally less than like, it was all of them together, uh, their military average uh, annual spend is half of Russia's 
and it's a fraction of ours, like less than 10%. So when I look at your ability to sustain a reserve currency, you have to look at its ability to protect that capital, that intellectual might. So that's one part of it, which we're clearly unmatched. And the euro, which is clearly the second choice because it's the most stable, it's in democracies, everything else, it just doesn't have that ability. The only reason it survives is because it's allies with us. That's it. Um, it's not like Russia is afraid to move into another country because Germany's next to them. Not at all. Russia doesn't care about them. Um, it's their only threat is us. Now, this why I'm talking about this, it's this mode of thinking that you're not thinking one dimensionally. It's not politics. This isn't hearsay. This isn't anything. I'm trying to figure out what the reality is because I'm trying to protect and grow my capital. That's it. So when we look at markets, we're looking at what people are doing, uh, not what people are saying. We're looking at fundamentals. We're looking at long-term trends, and we're looking at how that market um, GDP growth and stability results to overall yield within a given asset type, because those aren't even, right? So if you're looking for yield, right, you're not looking for yield in, you know, Southern California. Now, if you're looking for cash, cash pressure preservation in real estate, yeah, you're probably looking in California. Why? Because the government won't let you do anything. It, like you have basically a monopoly on so much real estate in Southern California. So when we look at this, it depends on what you're trying to achieve with your capital and which markets are best suited for it. Now, I'm a yield investor, but I also understand that a lot of places that you get yield are very problematic for to booms and busts. So that means we have to be super careful on our underwriting. There has to be a lot of meat on the bones in those markets, and we're not going to buy like I would buy in Seattle. I'm not going to buy like I would buy in Newport Beach, California, right? Um, because the economics are just not the same. And this is part of the process to understand the market. You're understanding growth, safety. You want to understand how that market will accomplish what investing goals you have, right? So we look at all of these things in a very multi-dimensional part. Um, there's lots of reasons I'm not in California, right, with capital, but it's mainly because of the needs of my capital, what I'm trying to achieve. Um, Cap uh, California is dominated by institutions um, that can get very low yield, and that's okay with them. They can also get their money at a fraction of what I can. So the yield isn't even the same, right? My yield and public storage's yield in Southern California is not the same because I have to get publicly traded debt while they get their debt at nothing, like 2%. So it's just not right? Um, and they also have the bandwidth to fight and go through the problems with the government in California that I don't, right? I, I just don't. I don't have it. Um, and it's when you look at these things, we see the same thing with New York or Florida. We see these, you know, all these things. And, and when we're looking at total growth and stability of the economy, most of those economies, right, they're huge. You cannot take away the fact that if you broke California off alone, it is the third largest GDP in the world, right? It's a juggernaut. It is such a huge part of our economy in the United States. It's mind blowing. Um, 
But at the same time, with that token, um, it is that comes with problems. Like uh, it's not going to grow like other economies are. It's already in that end phase of its life cycle, right? You see much more stagnation. When times are good, California looks good because it's very leveraged, right? On the overall uh, amount as well as capital infrastructure and what's happening there. So when times are good, capital's moving and it's just crazy good, right? Now, when, Cal- when times are bad, California just bleeds. It runs massive deficits, um, but assets tend to remain stable because of limited supply. So when you look at what you're trying to do and accomplish, and we're looking at the safety of a market, it's really kind of a combination. It's strategy, what you're trying to achieve, what the market is, and what it provides to you. Now, there's some baselines that I have in my underwriting. Okay. So, I can't, um, I don't let markets make me. This is really, really important. I've said this a lot and I, and I want to make sure that, um, this goes through. Um, I do not underwrite for markets to make me. Okay. But I underwrite that markets will kill me. So what that means is I'm looking for the meat on the bone, meaning if I'm underwriting because this market is having a 3% growth every year, and I believe that'll translate into X returns on my revenue in five years, that means my returns are coming because I'm expecting that market to go up. And if the market goes up, I yield the returns. If it doesn't, I don't. Okay. Um, I don't like that kind of investing because that is much more hope and praying. So when I'm looking at a deal, um, I'm looking first and foremost at the meat that is there immediately on the bone. And I can get that increase. We look at kind of like arbitrage inefficiencies in asset prices and revenue and what people are asking in a given market. And we try to close those inefficiencies. Um, and then from there, if the market goes up, right, I, that's that's icing on the cake. That's that's great. And uh, But with that said, I always underwrite the market can kill me immediately, meaning there's a time frame in which I can get that returns, which I need to stabilize. And I know and I underwrite that if I'm in a bad market that can turn, there's nothing I can do about it. So we're very careful in our market analysis to make sure that markets won't turn on us because I can't do anything about that. I can't fight that. I can't do anything. So this layered effect in this first line approach on the market, is this a market that is susceptible to a not, not, I wouldn't say a contraction because I underwrite to survive contractions, um, but basically a downfall. Meaning, could this market turn and not not come back? Um, right, that's a lot of smaller markets, and that's a lot of single employer markets. Meaning, there's one employer in that market. If that employer goes away, this market is devastated. So we're looking at diversification and revenue. Um, or excuse me, demand through employer base, how much, what percentage is concentrated. And we look at growth and I'm looking at growth and I'm combining that growth over a long history and I'm overlaying it in bad times. So did this market recover? Did it not? What was that recovery like after 2008? What businesses stayed? What went away? How much is supported by the government? Is it a military base? What are the contracts like? Um, I really want to understand uh, not only if the market is growing, but why and how. 
Um, and then I do look towards growth, right? Stagnant, shrinking markets I have to avoid because I, I, I just can't change that. And um, now I need to preface this because I get this asked just endlessly all the time. Um, a lot of people will say, I'm beginning, I'm just getting started, and I'm in a stagnant market. Should I not be doing this? Now, I need to make this very clear. When we were investing, we invested in stagnant markets um, when we first got started because they were so low priced, things like that. So what happened is then I looked at a very large focus on the product market fit and the demand then for the product in that given market. And I only focused on the meat on the bone, meaning if I'm in a market that is stagnant, not downfalling, not downfalling, but listen, if it's been stagnant and it, it didn't like it made it through the recession, there's lots of communities that have basic services and things like that. They don't really grow, but they're always around. It's diversified. It's in commodities, all a whole bunch of stuff like agriculture, different things. And I can look at how those change in the commodities affect that uh, given place, but it might not be that big of a town. Um, if I'm looking at that, I say, okay, it's it's not the, it's not like the market's going to make me. Well, then I do two things. First of all, I buy it only to get the return on what I can create. I mean, I never expect that market to go up. Also, I do not buy it with the intent to sell because if you do that, you're going to get yourself in a bad situation because those markets, um, when you have, when times get tough, there's a retreat of capital that flocks to the safety of first tier markets. And it leaves this just hole amongst small and middle America that the capital is sucked out as it retreats back to and demand goes with it. So you're not going to be able to sell at what you bought it for. That's just kind of how I look at it. Now, if it happens, great. But I wouldn't plan on that. If 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 to get my returns, I needed to sell in three years, and I need to sell at a lower cap rate to get it. You're gambling. That's all I have to say about that. I'll talk about that more and talk about that a lot in self storage income. But when we're looking at the overall market demand, I like Goldilocks markets. I like markets that have good, sustainable, long term growth, but aren't ginormous. I'm a big second tier market kind of guy. I can get yield, and I tend to find that in second tier markets, there are more inefficiencies within asset classes because you have more large players coming in, but it's still mom and pop do uh, um, dominated. What that creates is that creates the, the spread that I need to get that meat on the bone. And I know the market's good, it's diversified, and I have a lot of historical data, okay? That's what I need to get because I need yield, right? I am a yield investor. When people invest with me, they're buying it because they know they're gonna get equity, they're gonna get forced appreciation, revenue growth, we're getting our money back quick, and it will cash flow, have healthy margins forever, and that's how they're investing too. The, my investors invest with me for the long term, right? It's continual equity and continual cash flow. And we provide, because we get deals that are off market, we provide equity day one, right? It's That's our strategy. That's our, that's our whole thing. So that doesn't really work in California. Now, it's not that it can't. Um, I would be very interested in building or conversions in California. I'd be very interested in a lot of things. But my investors are very probably different than most, okay? The people that listen to me are looking at wealth generation or wealth uh, creation as well as protection and cash flow. 
I think everybody that listens to me, they're trying to create that for themselves. They're trying to get it for others. That's that's the thing. So product market fit for me is along those lines. Now, if I am somebody that says, listen, I'm a fixed income type. I want a 7% return and safety is the most important thing for me, right? Well, okay, then I might be definitely changing the markets I'm looking for. I may be looking in something like the Bay Area. I may be looking in some huge market that has uh, historical complete resilience against any fluctuations in the marketplace, right? Um, That's kind of how I would look at it. Now, with this, and one of the things that I look at when we're dealing with markets is long-term trends. I'm looking what effects have on those markets because I want to stress test them as I play out what's happening in the world today and what we see, things like rising interest rates, right? Things that, how's inflation affecting it? How's, um, you know, what are those things going? Now, inflation, I actually find to be almost a little more beneficial in second tier markets because they have such a large disposable income margin for the residents that live there. They can take that better without massively cutting back. Um, whereas in big first tier markets, if you have a if you have quick inflation, well, you already had very little disposable income. Your disposable income is getting snuffed out really, really quick. So I'm looking at consumers' ability to survive and to keep purchasing the products that I'm putting on the market, whatever that is, high-end condos, industrial space, um, self-storage office, um, if it's recreational, if it's on and on and on and on, it doesn't matter who are your consumers, what are these things going to affect it in that given marketplace? Those are what I'm looking at, right? Um, This also comes down to tenant allocation and different things like that that's a little deeper I'm not going to get into. So these large changes... um, that are driven by fundamental economics are what we look for. So let me give you kind of an example. Um, In my insurance days, uh, I view insurance as a insurance days. I still own an insurance brokerage company as well as um, other types of insurance companies. But um, what we looked for and, and one of the things that um, you really worry about is, you know, they're almost like individual economies and how these large companies and what they do with benefits. Um, because at the end of the day, you have people in charge that are managing the company. So think of like politicians, then you have revenue and you have expenses and you have subsidy, uh, subsidies in the form of benefits and other things. Don't email me saying they're not subsidies. They're not doing just go along with the analogy. It'll make sense. You'll get it. Don't need somebody flipping out about that. It is. It's a subsidy, okay? So there's these different types of sub- subsidies that are in place in these um, companies. Now, what the individual participants, the employees, uh, are looking for, and as if they were individuals in a marketplace living there, okay, it's I. what am I getting for what I am giving, right? That's the same thing every consumer and every single market across the United States is asking. I have to pay what in taxes? I have what rules? And how's my lifestyle? And what am I getting for that, right? It's the same thing that employees in companies are doing. Um, There's something called adverse selection. Adverse selection happens 
And it's very dangerous for companies to get in this position insurance. It happens when these things are not aligned. And what happens is the people that have choices. So let's say that I'm a company and I give out a certain benefit and that benefit cost my employee X amount. That employee is going to look at those healthcare benefits and they're going to say, what am I getting for X amount? Okay. They're also probably going to be looking around and saying, what are my other options? Adverse selection happens when all of a sudden that gets out of whack and all what we call the best risk are, meaning the healthy people start choosing to go somewhere else to get their insurance because they can't, they have good health and they can get better health insurance for the cost. So they make that choice. Now, on the other side, residents or employees that uh, are more risk or they are more, um, they are more participating in subsidies, they don't have that ability. Meaning if they went out to the market, the market is not going to give them more for what they pay because they take more than they give. Very simple economic thing, right? And it's displayed perfectly in insurance. When this gets lopsided, you have a downward spiral and it's called adverse selection. Very dangerous. And why, what happens? And why is there an adverse spiral? As the people that are good risk stop putting in, the people that are bad risk that are taking the insurance company and the provider of the subsidies has to increase cost more because more people that are taking, right, than there are putting in. So it creates an imbalance. Then that means that the price of those subsidies rises. Then what happens again? More people that can have options and have the ability to get health insurance elsewhere, then that price goes up to another notch. Those people leave. Then that problem gets even more. You have more people that are taking than are putting in. So costs have to rise again. And it goes on and on and on. And all of a sudden, this can happen very quickly. And you get in a downward spiral of adverse selection, meaning the company, the people in charge have put a plan in place that adversely incentivizes people to consume in, uh, incentives or consume subsidies that are giving less in. And it adversely affects the people that are giving in to leave. Very dangerous in health insurance. Um, when companies get, and these are large companies, thousands of employees, Lots of them are self-funded. That means they're running their own claims. So their claims are rising, yet their insurance premiums, as far as a quantity amount, is going down because there's less participants. So they have to raise the cost, and it just keeps going down and down and down. Then they get into a place where, well, now how do we incentivize these good people to come back on? Well, it's easy. Increase uh, or, or decrease the amount that they have to pay. Well, that spread at that point is so big, they can't stomach it anymore because they put themselves in a hole, in this huge hole. Um, I can't tell you how many large companies that we've dealt with this, and it's a bad spot to get in. Well, the same thing happens in economies. That's the whole point of this, okay? So when I'm looking at individual economies and cities, there is this adverse selection point. And some economies have more runway than others do before they're hitting. I'm thinking about making a bell curve chart to 
analyze and show this, okay? And there's this period where you have more people coming on than are taking and you get this growth. And this growth happens across the board. It happens in everything, right? So you have great subsidies, um, a lot of people contributing, great lifestyle, disposable income, great whole situation. And then there's this inflection point um, in the middle of the bell curve that those economies tip to the other side. Very easy to tell. People in California, migration patterns, people vote with their feet. And right now, people are moving to places where they get more for what they're putting in. They get more disposable income, lifestyle, right? California has been a huge benefactory that has something that most places can't offer and nobody on the West Coast can offer. They have the ocean. It's beautiful, right? I I, I go down to Newport to a business that I own for a few days and I leave cold Idaho, go down there and I'm like, oh yeah, this is why people live here. But at some point, it gets too much and it doesn't matter anymore and the outweigh. So then what do we see? We see mass migration patterns and mass amount of people leaving, voting with their feet and going to other areas like Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Texas, right? Arizona. And we see these massive growth rates and it's not even. This is another thing you have to realize. It's not even because normally the people voting with their feet are the people that have the ability to. So these are people that are selling homes, right? I've been super interested to see how much of California's subsidies that Idaho, Utah, Arizona, and Texas are taking. It has to be billions, meaning police force, teachers, uh, firemen, they move up in droves. Why? They have a guaranteed income. They're retired at $150,000, which is nothing when you live in LA. And they move to a place like Texas, Idaho, Arizona, and they have the best life imaginable. And their income is guaranteed from a pension fund or wherever back in California. So what happens now in these economies is the government is mandating you're pouring all of this money in, taxpayers' money, you have pension funds that are pouring money into it. Then those people are leaving and those rewards are getting sent to other economies. You can see how that's a massive fuel for other economies. And these are guaranteed government payments. Uh, Once again, I I haven't been able to quite figure it out. Anybody can. Let's get together. I'm trying to make a chart on this of capital flows along with people flows and how this works, but you're getting adverse selection. That means the people in California have to pay more to get because you're not taxing those people anymore. You're not getting anything from them anymore. So taxes have to rise. And meanwhile, the situation's getting worse. So all of a sudden, you have people that say, what am I paying for? Now, of course, then you have the problem that you have people that don't. it doesn't matter to, meaning they're so rich, these things don't matter, or people that can't. And what happens is the middle class gets obliterated. And that's what we've seen in places like New York and California. Super rich that don't matter. So the income disparity is shocking in these areas, right? I mean, you go down to... LA. And it's just like, you got people down there that trash in the place. It's disgusting. You got areas that are burned down, people living all over the streets, the homeless place is a crisis. And then you got somebody driving by this in a $1.8 million car. It's lunatic. It's just shocking, right? Plus you have these places that are putting 
more uh, more capital per person on a basis to take care of the poverty than anywhere else in the United States. It's shocking how much the Bay Area and these places allocate government spending for homeless and everything per person. It is double or more what other states, yet the problem gets worse. It's not getting better. So these are inflection points that I look at and I say, at the end of the day, let me be very clear. LA is not going anywhere, people. Bay Area is not going anywhere. They're not. It's not like California's on a downfall, right? It's not happening. California is ginormous. Now, the problem is, though, is these microeconomic things, the disparity of income, the contraction of disposable income. Um, and what that leads to is stagnation, meaning sometimes you'll have good growth, other times you won't, but there will be a lack of consistent growth and a lower overall growth rate in those economies, right? Well, that doesn't work for me. I'm looking 20 years out. And so if I look for 20 years out, when you're taking a compounded return on your money in LA versus Texas, Colorado, Idaho, Utah, and sorry for all the West Coast references, everybody, it's the same thing with New York. Just go to the Northeast, look at New York and some of those areas, and then go to the Southeast and say, it's the same thing, okay? Um, and you're looking at what's happening, the growth rate on a compounded annual return, even if those second tier markets have big shocks during a recession or depression, it's not comparable. Like it's so far outpaces. And this is going to, this is a ginormous transfer that I view from the haves to the have nots, meaning capital's pouring into markets, dramatically shifting and changing these markets. And it's taking it from the people in these first tier markets. They're plateauing and they're not going to have the run rate and growth that you're looking for. So the key to me is finding markets that have the long-term growth rate are stable enough to last these um, these recessions. And that's one of the reasons why Texas is just mind-bogglingly exploded. It had infrastructure and the ability to attract both big institutions because they believe their capital is safe, as well as mom and pop, as well as normal investors and everybody else. And the normal people could still get yield. They can still get the things that they want and they still get asset protection. That's the same thing like Denver, Utah, and Boise has now just surpassed that inflection point, right? When I grew up in Boise, it was not there. It was a big risk betting on Boise. The lack of infrastructure, ability, companies, different things. We're now past that. We are Salt Lake or Denver um, 15 years ago, right? So these markets are now reaching this point that they've never reached before, that they've never had in their history where they're big markets with still large growth rates. Now, at some point that changes, okay? So when I look at maybe Denver, I see a stagnation of Denver proper, but I still see large growth areas around Denver, okay? So that inflection point where you start to see that change in the markets is going to affect growth rate, okay? I've been talking a lot on this, and you're you're getting a glimpse into my crazy brain and what I think about all day long and what I'm looking at when I'm analyzing population income, overall growth rates, employer base, who the employers are, what they are, government officials, how these things are working, what people are getting for their money. Um, the thing is, though, guys, it's, it, it's happening. It, it's happening. And this goes back to my point at the very first. It's 
not political. It's just simply the outcome and the reality of the situation that I'm measuring. Politically speaking, yes, people like to say it's the red states that are all growing and sustained growth and everything. Well, that's true, but also these big blue states were all red states before, right? And it, once you get to that inflection point, they obviously become more blue because then it's about resources and disparity of income and on and on and on. They don't realize it. They think it's a national problem, even though it's not. It's a real problem that they have. Um, and that causes extreme measures. And that happens when economies stagnate. Just that's what happens, right? When economies stagnate, you get things like wars, you get social unrest, that's how it works. It's not a political, it's an economic symptom. And people don't realize that. We have World War I, World War II. These were economic things, right? It's, it's not that the Jews, in, or it's not that the Germans just automatically always and forever hated Jews. That became an excuse that was a symptom that they used to do mass murders and become outrageously racist and prejudiced against the people, which was a symptom of extreme economic problems, right? Everything that you see is generally a symptom of an economic underlying issue, right? That's And how we know this is because we look what comes first and how that rolls out. So those are things that I look at, right? There's a reason that People say, wow, you know, generally people in some areas are just way nicer than others. Well, they're nicer. They have less stress. They have disposable income. They have a better lifestyle, right? And people vote. They move. It, it, this is just the reality of it. And I want to be very real about looking at the reality of the situation with my money because my money is supposed to get a return. It doesn't care about politics. It doesn't care about anything else. And I suggest you do the same. These runways will end, meaning these states that we already see areas like Denver, right? Um, you know, Phoenix is even getting to this point too, but the periphery, is, it's still great growth. It's, you're getting kind of both, best of both worlds. Um, but we see these things play out when we see them take place. You need to be aware of what that means for your capital. You also need to be aware in areas that aren't going to grow. Meaning you hear these news, news clips and this small town X company is going to come and this, this whole area is going to blow up, right? That's not how it happens. It doesn't happen overnight like that because markets and economies need infrastructure. They need infrastructure to sustain and they get to a point once again, where those benefits to people are enough to where they can last um, downfalls, everything else. Well, if you don't offer people anything except for a great standard of living and disposable income in small towns and they have a better lifestyle, and then you get in a recession and that goes away, people move. We're all voting. Every day, we're voting. Um, we see this in growth markets. People are voting, moving out, and your capital needs to be positioned right. Now, you should also understand that, you know, we look at these things, we get them wrong, meaning things change, okay? We, I, I don't know everything that's going to happen. I think it was pretty clear that Detroit was going to be on a downfall and it was never going to come back because they weren't doing anything there to make it come back. So it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen because nothing was fundamentally changing and the economics weren't changing, right? Politicians can't change these things no matter what speech they give. It doesn't matter who the president is or who the mayor is, right? You need the people and the economics of the situation to change so people will vote to move in. That's not happening in those areas. So we don't want to invest in them. Um, we're not seeing substantial economic changes and there's not the infrastructure now. In fact, they have an infrastructure problem. It's run down. Um, 
And so they get trapped in this adverse selection and they get trapped in a hole. Those are cities that couldn't get out of adverse selection, right? Detroit got hit with adverse selection and they did all the wrong things. And then the people that were taking from pensions and from everything else was too much. Finally, they started moving those things out. They started getting people that were putting in more than they were taking out. Right or wrong doesn't matter. It's what happens. Um, so we look for the reverse of adverse selection to get growth, okay? All right. I think I've hit on this a lot. And I think it kind of gives you an interesting four-dimensional view. One thing, though, that you should know is I believe in diversification of um, these economies, meaning I'm not betting it all on one because I don't know what could happen, okay? Politicians, like, I don't expect the market to make me. I don't expect politicians to turn around a city or anything else like that, right? Um, but I realize the market can kill me. I also realize the politicians can kill you. They can do really, really stupid stuff, and they have way too much power. So I don't know what might change in the future in a local economy that could stop it from a growth rate to all of a sudden tanking it. Um, so I want to hedge uh, against that. And I don't want all my eggs in one basket. Um, that's a really big belief that I have because I believe that I don't know everything, right? That's the foundation of all our analysis and analytics and why, yes, I have opinions. I need to recognize those opinions. I need to stress test them with numbers. And then I need to hedge against my own biases and opinions. And I try to do that in a really real way. I think I'm personally to create growth in my capital, but also I have that responsibility for my investors, right? That are putting their money with me, that I'm not making stupid decisions because of something that I think or believe in or something like that. It needs to be rooted in actuals and, and, and knowns. Um, all right. I hope this was helpful. This is a long forum discussion on markets, market protection, market growth, market analyzing risk. And I want to end it with another thing here that's really important, and that is that price doesn't equal value. What I mean by that is because an asset is more expensive in one area and it's a lot cheaper in another area, that doesn't mean that there's intrinsic value more in the cheap asset. Okay? apply that to markets and why I don't look at cap rates and I don't look at the price to dictate the move, the investment, because some assets are priced higher due to the yield that they can achieve out of that market. And other assets are priced really low because there is no yield, right? And the only yield you're ever going to get is based upon what you buy it at. And that's it. So you got it's got to be bought as cheap as you can, because if not, you're not going to get anything. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the trap that price equals value. All right, everybody. I hope this was helpful. I love this topic, and I love discussing it with other people. We have some great podcasts in the past on market analysis, what's going on. Also, the YouTube channel launched. Go check it out. I'm putting all of this content out there, and I can show it with graphs a lot easier way to visually the AJ Osborne podcast as well as, or the AJ Osborne YouTube, as well as the uh, self-storage income YouTube, which is specific only to self-storage. We're putting this stuff out in a visual way. If you're still listening by now, please like this podcast and share it out, guys. That really, really helps me. Um, and I love sharing with you guys everything that we think, everything that we're doing and being as transparent as possible. I appreciate you. Thanks. 